When I was coming up in business school, there were two very prestigious careers, investment banking and consulting. And me being more of a finance nerd and numbers person, I went more towards the banking and finance side of things. But consulting was always an interesting application. And I think I see some of the really good consultants have extra, extraordinary careers. One of the interesting things I found from this podcast was the insight of how much they make and the economics of a consulting business. Can you talk a little bit about the industry of consulting and maybe in a slightly double-clicked way from what you did previously around who are the big competitors if you're McKinsey? What are practice groups and the different types of verticals and projects people take on? Like, How do those dynamics work? And just help us understand how the actual true commerciality of the industry operates. So I think if you top-down look at like a market sizing or so, I think there's reports out there that talk about consulting as a call it $150 billion to $200 billion kind of market. Like we talked about before, consulting can mean everything and anything under the sun. And so that includes one-man shops to the McKinsey types of the world. The business of consulting is segmented and fragmented based on, I'd say, management consulting, operational consulting, and technology consulting. And there's more nuance than that, but I think that's helpful for our discussion today. In management consulting and strategic consulting, there's really only two firms that I'd say have risen to the class of McKinsey or really kind of formidably pushed McKinsey as competitors. It's Boston Consulting Group, BCG, and Bain and & Company. And in the industry, they're known as MBB or the big three. There's another set of consulting firms that are significantly larger than those three consulting firms that also have accounting firms appendage to them. And they do much more operational work. So those are firms like Deloitte, PwC, uh, KPMG. Accenture doesn't have an accounting practice, but Accenture as well. And then you have a lot of IT-specific shops. So a lot of these firms are kind of a mix of BPOs, like outsourced and offshore operations, as well as operational outfits. So these are your IBMs, Capgeminis, Infosys, et cetera. IBM is a little bit different than the rest of that class because they do a lot of other stuff, but IBM consulting at least. The business of consulting is... In one sense, it's highly competitive. And in another sense, it's highly insulated. When McKinsey goes to compete, they really compete with Bain and BCG, and that's about it. The competitive pressures between those three are very, very intense. But those businesses over the last five years have been growing at their fastest clips than ever before. I mentioned McKinsey is about a $10 billion business. I think BCG is about an $8 billion business, and Bain is about a $4 billion business. Bain has taken a slightly different approach than both McKinsey and BCG. Bain has taken an approach of going very, very deep from a functional and vertical perspective. So a lot of folks listening probably know about Bain Capital. Bain Capital was famously spun out of Bain, and it was because Bain had a private equity practice. And so Bain thinks of themselves as much more of a regional player, much more of a on-site, onshore player, meaning that their consultants don't travel as much. And they have certain functions that they're really, really good at. McKinsey kind of likes to think of itself as the New York City of consulting. They do every vertical, they do every function. They've started recently doing a ton of M&A, bringing in all sorts of different talent. And the thesis and kind of the hypothesis for why they operate that way is their perspective is they're basically the best business repository in the world. So the more that they see from a vertical perspective, like you mentioned, Jesse, in terms of different industries, from a function perspective, marketing, sales, you know, so on and so forth, and from a global perspective... They have offices in over 50 countries. And so I think the strategic piece has been McKinsey, Bain, and BCG have kind of operated a little bit insulated, highly competitive to one another, but insulated from everybody else in the industry. And the focus has kind of been top-down, C-suite level initiatives versus other folks. But that model has evolved a lot over a period of time. 
it had to evolve because of competitive pressures and such. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember very distinctly industries on one side, functions on the other side, geos on a third, three-dimensional chart. If you're a CEO or top-level manager at a Fortune 500 company, how does somebody make a choice around which one to do business with and why? It's funny because I think anybody who's listening to this from McKinsey, from Bain, or from BCG, they're not going to be satisfied with this answer. I think they'd like to think that they're a lot more different than they actually are. I think the firms have significantly more commonality between the three of them than they are different. In the 70s and 80s, when Bain and BCG came about, their real claim to fame was, I was talking about a little bit earlier that McKinsey was highly internally focused. Their claim to fame was they were externally focused. So they came up with two-by-two matrices and some of these different tools that we all commonly use in business today. But Bain and BCG were very, very externally focused, advising companies on how should you be thinking about the horizon? How should you be thinking about your markets and accordingly reacting? That has all gone out the watershed. I wouldn't say McKinsey is an internally focused firm today. The other two are externally focused. They all do everything. Not dissimilar to any industry in which you have a small set of competitors at the top, They have their own niches. If you're a private equity-backed company, Bain is going to be a bit of a better fit. If you're looking for pricing and sales and marketing, specifically in the Southeast, I'd say McKinsey is going to be a little bit better of a fit. So they have their niches. I think a lot of if you're at a Fortune 500, you're a C-suite executive, the way you're making that determination is really on the specificity of your business problem, as opposed to anything academically that ostensibly the three firms can bring to the table that the other three firms can't. They're all filled with super talented people. They have scale. They're big businesses. They know what they're doing. They've got great client Rolodexes. It really just boils down to at the end of the day, what's the specific business problem that you're trying to solve? I want to go a couple levels deeper into this to really break it down. So I have a specific business problem. I hire McKinsey. Talk to me about what's a normal project? What's kind of the happy meal they sell? How much does it cost? What are their costs associated with it? Like, just give me the PL of a project. McKinsey is notoriously private about its fee structure. I think the cool thing is for folks that are trying to understand their business, or I'd say any other top tier professional services business, is they all do public sector work. And when you do public sector work, the bids are public information. So we can actually take a very real example and break down the business. Before jumping into specific numbers, let me take a step back and kind of talk about some of the elements that you were bringing out. So the idea again, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the idea comes down to how many work streams are on an individual project. So a project might be super simplistic. It might be there's only one work stream. There's only one team. It might be really complex. You might be doing very, very large scale M&A project. You might have a team that's focused on making sure we hit synergy targets for Wall Street, a team that's focused on org and operating model design. You can have a whole kind of roster of teams. So the first piece is it really depends on what's the complexity of the project. Any individual work stream is kind of structured the same way. Again, it's going to be a function of how many consultants are there, how long are they there for, what's the level of their seniority on the team. The state of New Jersey actually had a project. I pulled this out for our conversation. State of New Jersey had a project for COVID response, and they had three work streams. Now, the unit economics were pretty similar on all three, so we can just dive into one. So for a team of six consultants, McKinsey proposed a fee of $180,000 per week. And so that breaks down to about $6,000 per consultant per day, something like 750 bucks an hour for an eight-hour day. Now, you know this as well as I, that that's super generous because no McKinsey consultant is working eight hours a day. I wish I was on projects that were working eight hours a day, but it's directionally helpful. And that per diem can range really widely. It can be 3K for a junior consultant, and it can be 15 to 20K for a senior partner. Now, by no means are those consultants making $750 an hour. The junior consultant, certainly not. 
And so there's a lot of margin in that project structure to basically accord for and support different things. Now, some of that goes towards direct costs. The biggest direct cost, of course, is the salaries of the professionals that you're putting on the ground. The second biggest cost is that one firm mindset. So there are teams offshore that are supporting with making slides. There might be research analysts to pull data, analytics teams, extra number crunching is required. But the secret about those projects is oftentimes those are billed at separate resources. So McKinsey is not thinking about itself as just because we're bringing one firm to the table, do we necessarily need to subsidize some of those elements or so? I mean, it's a very, very high margin business. I want to put some tighter numbers on it. So 180000 a week by my back envelope is about seven, 800000 a month, let's say 750000 a month. You've got six full-time people. So just ballpark, what do those people cost typically? If you're a first-year consultant at a graduate school, it's like, call it 200000 If you're at undergrad, hundred grand. So 50 to 100 bucks an hour type resources if you drilled it down to the hourly. So you have 750000 You're paying a six times 20, 120000 some other research analysts and support. And what about all the travel and airplanes and hotel rooms that people always talk about in consulting? There's two different types of models. One is it's baked into a cost structure and the flat fee that's being charged. Or the other is it's cost plus and it's being charged on top. I think anybody that's listening that's run a professional services firm knows that that's a little bit more semantics. And the reality is, is the client is paying for it at the end of the day. And so a lot of those core expenses, when you break down the business, I think, and you think of beyond the people, what are all the other expenses that are being paid for? It fundamentally is paid by the client. And so the result is you end up having a very, very high margin, almost like a technology-like gross margin business. We talk a lot about technology businesses are 60-70% gross margin. It's incredibly attractive. That's about the margin range that McKinsey runs on without the need to reinvest the amount of capital that a technology company of this type of scale would be reinvesting below the line. That's obviously a very high gross margin. You talked about $10 billion in revenue. What are the other big expenses below these projects that come out? And what does the EBITDA look like? I mean, I think when you run these types of firms and you're hiring really top talent, you're putting in all the investment structures into making sure that that top talent is in a position to succeed. And it can be on as trivial of things as benefits and comfort, or it can be on as extensive of things as true training and development or advanced technology centers, et cetera, to make your people better or to make them work better. I think these types of businesses, I don't know exactly, Jesse, but I would spitball that these folks are probably operating probably around like a 25-30% EBITDA, which is extremely, extremely high if you think about just a normal business construct. And so really the question becomes between that 50 to 70% and 30%, where are the costs being spent? And the vast majority of it is being invested in ways that I would say are directly related back to people, whether it's having nice offices, whether it's having training and development, whether it's recruiting and sourcing the next set of candidates, et cetera. That 30 to 40% or so is in some way tied back ultimately to the talent at the firm. A typical business obviously has marketing, sales, delivery of their product. Talk about to what extent we can around McKinsey in that regard. Let's start with marketing and sales. How does McKinsey do marketing and sales? I think it's actually one of the most underrated elements of their business model. If we go back to what I was talking about before, right? Firm has that value of don't overtly be commercial, do kind of what's in the client's interest. Let's keep that as kind of one vector, just to remind folks. And then the other vector is like extremely deep training and development and having like a massive platform that really, really focuses on folks. 
the implication is that when most people leave, when they leave McKinsey, it's almost like a part of their identity is tied back with McKinsey. Whether that's in the next job, whether it's at a dinner party, whatever it might be, part of their identity is kind of tied towards McKinsey. Many of these alumni, as we talked about earlier, go on to be leaders in industry. What happens when you combine the two? You get alumni that credit McKinsey for arguably the most formidable parts of their career and are trained to think a certain way. And then you get a whole bunch of McKinsey folks that go into industry and they're brought into that client because of the way they're thinking. When they're on the other side and they need help, who's the first call they make? It's right back to McKinsey. The model of business development or marketing is actually pretty unbelievable if you think about it. McKinsey, what they're doing and why they end up spending that top dollar internally on training, it's not just training their own internal professionals. In a sense, it's they're training their next set of clients at the same time. The model is, it's really, really... And Bain and BCG and say top-tier professional services firms think about it the same way, is you can do traditional business development and all the problems of traditional business development we're all familiar with. That's not super interesting or exciting. I think the interesting piece is how many of these consultants are actually going on as they become alumni to clients. And because those are the folks that are in leadership positions and positions of power and authority, they're bringing McKinsey right back through that same door. It's like a talent flywheel of sorts. When did that start and how did that evolve? I mean, it started really at the beginning of McKinsey. It just was a lot smaller. When Bauer and these guys ran the firm and it was only in New York or only in Chicago, that talent wheel was just inside specific financial institutions. As they went more global, it started becoming in other companies. As they went deeper in certain verticals or certain functions, went deeper and deeper. The reason why earlier I called McKinsey as the New York City of consulting is it's a very intentional thought process for the way the firm has built itself. In fact, they take the opposite approach of a bane and say, we don't want to lower our standards for the folks that we're hiring, but actually we don't really want a rejectionist or an exclusive culture. We want to hire as many people as possible that can keep the bar because those many people, the business model is not going to change. Those people are not going to stay at McKinsey. The average tenure, I think, is like two and a half or three years. So those folks are going to leave. But when they leave, we want them to have had a really good experience at McKinsey, a tie-in to McKinsey, and then bring us along for the ride wherever they go. Can you talk about some of the more traditional sales and marketing things they do? Like the McKinsey Quarterly, before content marketing was a thing, people in my undergrad, we were nerdy Wharton business kids, would reading the McKinsey Quarterly. Talk about some of the more traditional things they've done and how they've spun them. It's a good area to focus. And it all kind of starts back with what we were talking about a little bit earlier of this idea of being a repository for business. And so part of the idea was for collecting all this information, we're collecting all these insights. It's great. We can use them in client service, but how can we actually spin them up and how can we actually use them to put our insights out into the world in a passive way? So you're right. The McKinsey Quarterly was a publication that McKinsey came up with. McKinsey also has something that's tangentially related called the McKinsey Global Institute which puts together research, data, insights, papers at a much broader and a much more theoretic level. But the idea was to become the practical Harvard Business Review. If people came to Harvard Business Review to write about theories about business, people went to McKinsey Quarterly to actually apply those theories in real practice. And all the articles in McKinsey Quarterly were coming out from sanitized versions of actual client engagements or actual cross-observations in a specific industry or so. It was pretty novel. I mean, you wouldn't think of a consulting firm necessarily getting in the authorship and the publication business. And it's not something they've ever charged for. And that was really intentional too. The intentionality there was basically to have as wide of brand awareness as possible so that 
nerdy Wharton kids like you, Jesse, could read that, get enamored and say, hey, this is the place that I want to work and I want to start my career. So yeah, McKinsey, 35% bid their margins, charging $750 an hour on a cost basis of $75 to $100 an hour. I think it's a pretty good deal. Good business. And there's some strategies that probably could be applied to any business, uh, including the last bit about the marketing stuff.